Women in Wellbeing is an Eden Center podcast, highlighting emotional well-being and mental health through Jewish sources and interviews with experts and activists. Our host, Karen Muller-Jackson, is a certified Matan Morala Halakha, Jewish educator, writer, founder of Kifun Shirut Guidance Program for Religious Girls, and creator of Power Parsha. Just as the mikvah waters create the opportunity for renewal, we hope the insights shared here will serve as a springboard for discussion and rejuvenation. Hello, and welcome back to the Eden Center Women and Wellbeing Podcast. This month's podcast was generously sponsored by Esther Tukaziner, wishing everyone a Shana Tova. For Rosh Chodesh Tishrei, we will be talking about the emphasis on food and eating during the holidays and the potential as well as the challenges this poses. On the one hand, this is an opportunity to merge the physical with the spiritual, a Jewish ideal. On the other hand, this can be a touchpoint issue for many in our communities who struggle with eating disorders and eating issues. After my Torah thoughts, I will be speaking with an expert in the field, Aliza Gilman, so stay tuned for that informative interview. Rosh Chodesh Tishrei is almost here, and Jewish homes are filled with the smell of freshly baked halot and honey cakes and simanim all cooking. The run up to Rosh Hashanah and the Chagim is filled with preparation. We prepare physically by planning our menus, inviting guests, and cooking up a storm. We also prepare spiritually by going to slichot and elul classes and help, and we try to focus on tshuva and our upcoming tefillot. These two sides often remain separate, the physical sustenance and the spiritual aspects of the holidays. Yet, Torah and Jewish thought very much emphasize that the two are meant to be integrated from the very beginning of creation. The growth of food and mindfulness and prayer are connected. In the retelling of creation in Sefer Breshit, chapter 2, just before Adam is created, the Torah states, When no shrub of the field was yet on earth, and no grasses of the field had yet sprouted, because God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there were no human beings to till the soil. Rashi, on this pasuk, asks, Why did God withhold the rain? And he gives two reasons based on the words of the verse. God withheld the rain because there were not yet human beings to be makir tov, to appreciate the rain. And when Adam felt the need for rain, for sustenance for the world, he prayed for rain, which enabled the grass and trees to grow. Only after Adam was created and saw the need for sustenance in the world and could truly appreciate the rain and what it would give and grow, only then did Hashem grant him this gift. Similarly, when we are given the mitzvah Birkat HaMazon to express gratitude after we have eaten, the commentaries see a deep connection between physical sustenance and spiritual appreciation. As the people are about to enter Israel, Moshe praises the abundant treasures awaiting them there, springs, pomegranates, olive trees, and other natural resources. He contrasts this with their experience of slavery in Egypt and with their time in the desert. And then he says... You shall eat and be satisfied and bless Hashem for the good land Hashem has given you. Why remember the way it was in Egypt? Why is this necessary? The Ramban explains that by remembering the hunger and challenges of obtaining food in Egypt and in the desert, the people would have greater appreciation of the land of Israel and its produce after they entered the land. Shadal provides a psychological interpretation of the pshat of this verse. At first, this expression of thankfulness will happen naturally. It will be, we won't take things for granted. We'll go into the land and naturally we will say, wow, thank God for this 
for this treasure, for this abundance. This, according to Shadal, is a prediction. And similar to we saw, what we saw with Adam HaRishon. However, over time, it is human nature to forget the source of goodness and to take gifts and success for granted. So in the following verse, the Torah commands us not to forget the gifts that God has bestowed upon us, not to forget the experience we had before in Egypt and in the desert, saying Birkat HaMazon and other brachot on food, ensure that we keep the physical, spiritual continuum in check. Stay in balance. One final source highlights the potential of Kedushah, of holiness, in the way we approach food and eating. When Sefer Vayikra talks about Kedoshim Tihiyu, be holy, the Ramban interprets this to mean that even when something is permitted within the Torah, such as eating certain foods, it has an additional aspect, an additional mitzvah of being mindful about how we eat and elevating the act of eating from physical to spiritual. These sources provide a nice, healthy perspective on food and sustenance in Judaism. However, these messages are unfortunately not always conveyed to our youth. This is not always what we emphasize. Food is such a huge part of Jewish life. Every Chag has its special foods. On Shabbat as well, there is so much emphasis on the meals and so much time spent at the table around food. Sometimes this poses a significant challenge in particular in our society, which has placed such an emphasis on one's body image and how we look. Even within our religious communities, there are still so many cues and messages that girls in particular are exposed to that may affect their relationship with their bodies and with food negatively. How can we help navigate these challenges? So for Chodesh Tishrei, stay tuned as up next, I'll be speaking with Aliza Gilman about eating issues and eating disorders, challenges and solutions within the Jewish community. Aliza Levitt Gilman is a psychotherapist who uses an integrative approach drawing upon CBT, DBT, EMDR, schema therapy, and other modalities to treat a variety of issues. Her primary areas of focus are anxiety disorders, eating disorders, trauma, and self-harm. She sees private patients in Jerusalem as well as providing private coaching and seminars for parents to teach healthy eating habits from infancy and healthy boundary setting with adolescents. Hi, Elisa. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you've been working for a number of years with uh, religious young women. Um, actually, mm-hmm. I've been hearing maybe it's not just young women uh, who have been struggling with eating related issues or eating disorders in the Jewish community. Could you tell us a bit about the data? Uh, what what is uh, are the numbers rising? I've read a bit of uh, information about the numbers going up, and how is it different here? Let's say for the religious community in Israel and for the religious community abroad, um, in particular after COVID, what's been happening? Mm-hmm. Okay. So prior to COVID, the numbers were unsettling. You know, they're, um, we, you know, anyone who's struggling with an eating disorder is already one too many. Uh, the numbers were unsettling. And unfortunately, we don't have really accurate statistics for the religious communities, either in Israel or abroad, simply because it's underreported. Uh, if you go to NIDA, which is, um, the, uh, the National Eating Disorders website in the U.S., they talk about the fact that the Jewish community, we don't have appropriate statistical information 
because people are embarrassed to discuss mental health conditions, depending on which religious community you're affiliated with, um, having a mental health condition can have a really negative impact on, you know, whether it's an eating disorder or depression or anxiety, regardless, it can have a really negative impact on your chances of getting married, on your siblings' chances of getting married, of employment, et cetera, getting into certain schools. So many families really hide um, diagnoses, so we don't necessarily know the numbers, number one. Number two, unfortunately, um, in the vast majority of Jewish communities, again, doesn't matter if it's Israel or the US or Australia or England, um, there's still a pretty high emphasis on appearance, especially in young women, married women. You know, there's this idea that when someone comes into Shoal with her new baby, look at you, you bounced back. Mm -hmm. So there's a real emphasis on weight loss and thinness in general. So it's also very possible that we have a pretty large undiagnosed population because the symptoms are staring at us in the face and we don't recognize them because we're so um, trained to look at certain things which could be concerning as, um, as positive achievements. Oh, you had this baby and you're back, you know, you've lost three clothing sizes in five months. Good for you, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, for example, uh, the medical professional often miss it as well. You'll have um, men or women who are medically obese who start losing weight by severely restricting their food intake to the point where it's clinically concerning. But when they go to their doctor and they say, listen, I've been really restricting what I'm eating. I'm not eating very much. I'm exercising a lot and they're losing weight. Most doctors will look and say, that looks great. You know, visceral fat around your abdomen is really dangerous for you, losing all this weight. Wonderful. And they miss the development of, um, of you know, an eating disorder, of which there are a few, um, simply because they're looking at weight loss. And so I, I can't give you exact numbers. Um, what I can tell you is uh, I have some statistics from about six months ago. Um, there has been a 119% increase uh, in eating disorder hospitalizations in kids under 12. Under 12. Under 12, oh yep. Goodness. At the moment, 95% of the uh, eating disorders being diagnosed are in individuals between the ages of 12 and 20 uh, and 22 years old. Excuse me, 25. I apologize. And the reason I'm saying individuals is that men get underreported as well. Mm. Uh, we often think that it is a you know a middle uh, middle class white female disease, and it's not. And we have a lot of men who are suffering from eating disorders and disordered eating as well. So they're included in the statistic. Um, prior to COVID, it was about, we saw eating disorders in about 1% of the general population. Now we're looking at 5%. That is a massive increase. Um, and what's something which also a lot of people aren't aware of is that there's, um, there's a couple different types of eating disorders. The one that's probably the most well-known is anorexia nervosa. Mm -hmm. um, it's got a 10 to 17% mortality rate, which is the highest mortality rate of any mental health condition. And one out of every five of those deaths are deaths by suicide. Mm. So this is a very, very, very serious medical condition, which is really misunderstood as to how dangerous it can be. Um, and a really low percentage, sometimes as low as 10% of people diagnosed with an eating disorder or who are suffering from eating disorder get treatment. Uh, treatment, depending on where you live, is simply either inaccessible, exorbitantly expensive. There might not be a trained practitioner in your area. And I can tell you that at least here in Israel, um, I'm getting calls almost daily to treat eating disorders. My colleagues are in the exact same position. I work privately. 
all of the public institutions have wait lists for months, if not, again, if you're in the peripheral, you know, the peripheral part of the country, close to a year, if not longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just that, I can't, you know, if someone walks in and if they're medically unstable, I can't treat them. Mm-hmm. Or certain, uh, you know, depending on how severe your eating disorder is, I can treat you, but you need multiple times a week, you need a staff treating you. And so I have to often reject clients simply because I don't have the capacity to give them what they need in an outpatient setting. And there just isn't space in the day treatment programs, in the intensive outpatient programs, in the uh, inpatient treatment programs. Um, Globally, between 2000 and 2018, eating disorder diagnoses went up from 3.4% to 7.8% and are currently standing at 9% of the general population. All right. Um, In Israel, there's currently the estimate that between 30,000 to 40,000 adolescents and adults suffer from eating disorders. Um, there is a, a push now that the government in Israel at least needs to get far more involved in the treatment of eating disorders because it's really reaching proportions never seen before. And the mental health community and the medical community, because it's not just a mental health condition, simply don't have enough capacity to treat it in an adequate fashion. Yes. So it's, uh, you know, putting aside religious, not religious, et cetera, globally, we're looking at a, a really scary uh, rise in numbers amongst the, uh, the, the young, you know, the adolescent young adult populations. Wow. So, you know, I don't know if we have time to get into why the numbers went up so much over the last few mm-hmm. years, um, but we're, but clearly, you know, the facts on the ground, we're seeing this and hearing about this. Um, I, uh, I've also read about the impact of social media sites, mm. um, not to blame one in particular, but in particular, you know, young women on Instagram and seeing mm-hmm. you know, uh, almost the, the kind of competition to mm-hmm. look a certain way and present yourself. Um, when we were growing up, you know, yes, we also had similar things with magazines and models, but nothing like the amount of time that our kids are spending on social media. Um, how, what is this relationship uh, between social, social media and its influence on young people regarding body image? And mm-hmm. soon, I just want to let our listeners know, we're, we're really laying out a lot mm-hmm. of the issues here, and soon we're going to talk about uh, some of the potential solutions. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, right. So what, one important factor to, to keep in mind is that you know, social media is absolutely plays a really large role in the development of disordered eating and eating disorders and body image issues and self-esteem issues, but something which really was a shot, you know, a shot of steroids basically into the mix was COVID, where you teens um, and young adults and regular adults as well, we were all in front of devices for far more time. We were isolated. We were spending a huge amount of time on social media. At the same time, especially during isolation, people started, you know, we we were stuck at home. (laughs) We had a limited number of options of things we could do. That's when, you know, sourdough became a thing. Um, We were all cooking constantly and baking constantly. There really wasn't much you could do. And at the same time, people were trying to exercise. Uh, Here in Israel, we, in the first, the first lockdown, we were restricted to a hundred meters from our home. So if you're a runner and avid exercise, that's not very much. And all of a sudden YouTube, you know, exercise videos became everyone's best friend. Um, And then, so on top of the regular social media use, we were in this really, um, unique situation, which had never occurred before, where all of a sudden people were consuming far greater amounts of social media than they had ever been in their life. And they were talking consistently about health 
and their bodies and et cetera. And there's all these challenges. And, you know, and plenty of people also started gaining weight during COVID because again, we were baking a lot, we were eating a lot. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people who have a history of challenge with food, that was really triggering. Either the fact that they began eating far more than they had been doing so before. If you have a history with binge eating, uh, that can be very triggering. If you have any, any eating disorder history, disordered eating history, it can be very triggering being stuck just eating. Um, and then on social media, everyone's posting about their exercise. Or, you know, I, I heard story after story of, you know, girls' classes saying, let's do an exercise challenge. We're all going to meet up on Zoom. And, you know, or, you know, stories like someone mentioned that their son ran a marathon on his porch. <laughs> Like just going back and forth and it took hours, um, you know, and so this, this concept of exercise, then, you know, don't, you know, we don't want to get fat. So I can't really talk about, about social media now without bringing up also COVID because there was just so much more exposure that normally wouldn't have happened. Generally speaking, the average time that, that kids spend in front of a screen these days, like adolescents is an average of five hours, mm. which is a huge amount of time. Um, about 20% say they actually spend between seven to eight hours, 10 to 13% say they spend nine hours or more. Um, and I think one of the big challenges also a lot of parents, uh, the, the boundaries got blurred during COVID with what our roles are, what we can do, what we can do. Also, um, parenting with phones is still a relatively new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of parents of adolescents, once the lockdowns ended, it was a question of what, well, what do we do? So you, you've had all this freedom. Do we, do we take it away? Do we, what do we do? Um, so, is there, so we still have a lot of teens who are in front of social media constantly. I saw a huge uptick um, in development of eating disorders and disorder eating during COVID, during all the various lockdowns and after. And I'm still treating clients today who developed their symptoms during one of the COVID lockdowns. Now, but I'll just um, top- hop in and say, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, you know, also, um, you know, and I saw this firsthand, unfortunately, there's also the effects of long COVID and losing taste mm. in smell, which was associated right. with COVID, which then was, of course, related mm-hmm. to eating. Right. You know, yeah. right. Now, regarding the question with, 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 um, with uh, social media, uh, there was the famous whistleblower case a few years ago where someone came out and reported about the internal reporting from uh, Facebook and Instagram about how damaging social media is. And there was actually an article released this past February in the APA where they looked about how even just reducing your social media time, how that can impact um, your body image. And they found that by, they, you know, granted, you know, their focus group is what most focus groups in therapy and, and uh, psychology studies are, which are college students, but they looked at young women between the ages of 17 to 22 or 23, and they had them reduce their social media time by 50%. And the changes were really incredible. Women reported significant increases in, um, and how they felt about their body, how they felt in relationship to their peers, how, how their self-esteem was. Um, and these are already women who are towards the latter parts of, of, uh, of puberty, mm-hmm. where, you know, finally they're, you know, the, the, front, the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain, which is in charge of logic and reasoning, finally catches up to the rest of your brain, which has been maturing since you were nine. Yes. Um, and, you know, and if that's the numbers we're seeing with more mature young adults, then I'm, I'm assuming the numbers with younger um, adolescents who have less mature brains, we would see a greater, you know, a, a greater impact as well, where you take yeah. kids out of this bubble. Um, social media, it's also, it's algorithm based. So all you have is one teen who clicks once on, yeah. you know, do this five minutes a day to lose your belly fat. Yeah. 
Um, eat this to lose five pounds in a week. And very, very quickly, both Instagram, TikTok, the algorithms within five, 10 minutes will be spewing out a lot of toxic information. Hmm. Um, TikTok is unfortunately a really big problem because there's simply not the controls needed. Uh, other platforms like Pinterest, for example, have made greater efforts to try and limit um, damaging content. There's a whole field of content that used to have a hashtag, it still does, called Thinspo, which stands for Thinspiration. Mm. It was like, you know, things that, you know, things that women would post to try and inspire them to be thin. Mm. Wow. Um, there, was, there was the thigh gap challenge that was trending a number of years ago where people showed that, you know, their thighs didn't touch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, just, just to name a few. Yes. Um, so social media is a huge problem. Now, on the flip side, you can absolutely have body positivity and more positive influencers coming up, but they're they're the minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the exception. So yeah. we if you you know if you're listening to this and you're a parent of a teen, hop on their social media, see what's coming up when you scroll down their feed. Um, put limits yeah. on their phone time. And talk limits to them, on what they're doing. Talk to them about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, talk yeah. to them. Now, a lot of times adolescents um, are, you know, it's hard to talk to parents sometimes, you know, because we're very quick to cut, jump in with uh, ideas or hear solutions. And a lot of times they just want us to listen. Um, peers are actually really impactful. There's a very, very, very cool study that came out of Stanford that's still being worked on. It's called the Body Image Project. Mm. I think Dr. Eric Stice is the is the uh, professor behind it. I could be mistaken. Where they they're, they're creating a protocol to help prevent the development of treatment disorders, but they found the most infect, effective excuse me way to implement this protocol is in peer led groups. Mm. Other adolescents or other young adults or other college students have already been trained to facilitate this group, leading the group, as opposed to someone like me who comes in and says, hi, you know, I'm the adult in the room. Listen to me. Yeah. Um, and it's- so it's there's Yeah, there's there's definitely what to be done, but it's social media presents a really big challenge. Yes. Yes. And uh, as I'm speaking to you, I'm also remembering that in, you know, back in my day, and I don't know how much this is still the case, but the year, you know, here we have listeners from all around the world, um, you, you know, coming to coming to Israel for the year or going away to college. Those were also kind of triggering times where, um, I mean, you can speak more to the causes, but... Yeah. Listen, I, I went I went to Madrashat Lindenbaum and my roommate hung up a picture that her siblings had made her. And it had a picture of a cow on it and it they printed out underneath it said, Don't come home a fat cow. Wow. And she hung that up and I, I remember saying, Wow, that's that's kind of mean. Yes. <laughs> and she said, Oh yeah, no, it's a joke, but it's also to help like remind me to, you know, think because like I'm gonna be going out. I I was a pop. <laughs> Yeah. You think that led um, to your decision to uh, was a piece of uh inspiration? No, there, listen, there are there are mm-hmm. a lot of things which have impacted my my desire to work in this field. Um but um it's the the pressure on women to look a certain way and present a certain way, regardless of your ethnicity or religion or even location, is horrific. I mean, in uh Televisions were not introduced into the island of Fiji until the 1990s. Mm. Prior to that, Fiji did not have any reported cases of eating disorders. Wow. That's a Within crazy. six months of TV wow. being introduced and importing a Western ideal of beauty, 
cases started coming in about women on diets, women reporting body image dissatisfaction. Um, so we're really surrounded. Um, now, granted, I also I grew up in the same time as you, where it was primarily magazines and television and movies, and that was it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I wanted to see images of models. I had to like go into my Barnes and Nobles and grab the latest YM or Cosmo or Vogue and you know leaf through it, and then I could put it you know or get the Victoria's Secret catalog delivered. Yes. And that was that was the extent of, of my exposure, but it was limited. Okay. Um, and even then, it still made an impact on me and my peers. And today, it's relentless. Yes. Yes. Wow. So that is a perfect segue into my next question, uh, which is going to be such a big question, um, which is how uh, how do we as mothers um, or parents, but in particular mothers, because this is more a female issue, how do you broadcast good messages about food? I know we're going this podcast. Actually, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Ma- to Dr. Naomi Grummet, who suggested this as a topic this so we're going into Tishrei, into the Hagim, yeah. and um, we have the whole spiritual side, but we also have the whole physical side, mm-hmm. you know, focusing on the mm-hmm. food and so many days, yeah. and, you know, especially when you have two-day yuntives nonstop, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, and so what what are, what can we do to, on the one hand, have these, you know, beautiful meals and wonderful food, and at the same time, be conscientious of what are we think, what language are we speaking, what are we thinking, mm-hmm. What messages are we broadcasting to our families and ourselves? Yeah. So, you know, my, my grandparents, you know, are the World War II generation. And my parents grew up with, you don't waste food. They knew what rationing was. They knew what food scarcity was. My grandfather um, was an American soldier in World War II and helped refugees after the war. Um Everyone saw firsthand the effects of starvation. Many of my friends, also my grandparents, were Holocaust survivors. And our parents were raised with, you don't, you know, you don't waste food. You finish everything on your plate. Everything. And then, you know. Um, so not, not only that, then we got to the 80s where everything was bad. <laughs> Fat was bad. Carbs were bad. You know, everything was bad. And it was, you know, Jane, you know, Jane Fonda and her leggings. And, <laughs> you know, um, and, and so many, so many of us have been raised that we're supposed to finish the things on our plate. And that foods, certain foods are bad. And that food has, has uh, almost moral value. You know, if we're talking about the Hagim, what's good, what's bad. Um, and the fact is food doesn't have moral value. There are not good foods and bad foods. Now, if, you know, you have got diabetes or something, then we can say that, you know, this is not a good food for you. Stay away from that food because that could kill you if you eat too much of it or cause, you know, significant health implications. But aside from extreme cases where you have allergies or an illness which is impacted by certain types of food, there is no good or bad food. Um, and two of the major things that, you know, we as parents, I'm going to emphasize parents because a lot of times also dads can have a lot of throwaway comments that they don't think about that can really impact their daughters as well. You know, if a a girl understands that her value is supported also by her dad and, and who she is and not so much her appearance, that plays a huge role decades down the line when she's looking for a spouse, looking for, you know, what, what healthy validation looks like in your partner, uh, your male partner, if uh, that's what, um, that's what they're looking for. Um, so the first thing is that we as, you know, people and Jews, Jews especially, we're really bad at checking in with our bodies. Mm. Am I full? Now, if you look at, at the, the halachot around Berkat HaMazon, we say, what do we say? V'achalta v'savata. Not v'hitpotsatsta. <laughs> Not the milit, v'savata. And the word sve'ah is you were satisfied. And satisfied is both from 
an emotional point of view, in my opinion. You know, if I eat a small portion of something, but it tasted so good, I can find that satisfying. Visavati, my my body's needs have been met. And we're not very good often at checking in as, how am I feeling right now? Like, you know, in the 90s growing up, you know, I don't know if it was Kate Moss or you know, I think it was Kate Moss who said, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. You know, so there was this idea, you know, stop eating before, when you're still a little hungry. That's how you know that you've had enough. Yeah. You should always be a little hungry, um, you know, or, you know, so many Shabbat meals, you know, I people lean back in the table and kind of groan and you're watching the men loosen their buckles and going, oh, I'm stuffed. Yeah. can't believe I ate so much. And especially if you're Ashkenazi, it's very heavy food often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the really important things is to practice mindful eating, which is mindfulness is a very trendy topic as the last 10, 12 years already. And to say, when you put the food on your plate, stop, take a bite, chew, take a few bites, even and just stop and check in. Mm. Am I full? Am I enjoying this? Do I want to eat this? Um, and, you know, we have to get rid of this idea of I must finish the food on my plate. If you're worried about Baal take less food. Um, yeah. But we're not good at checking in. So teaching our kids to say, check in with your tummy. What's your tummy telling you? Um, with your older, now older kids gain, you know, older kids eat a lot more because their bodies are growing and part of that growth is waking. And one of the things that a lot of people aren't aware of is that uh, a, a female can gain up to 40 pounds during adolescence as part of her puberal development. So frequently we'll look at these you know, teenage boys packing it away and, oh, look at him and his appetite. We see a teenage girl packing it away. And I start hearing comments like, are you sure that you want that second helping? Or do you really want dessert, honey? Or how about some more salad? I'm not going to pass you the potatoes. I'm going to pass you some salad. And there's these, these, these judgment-laden comments, which the parents can say, I wasn't saying anything. I just wanted her to think twice. But it's it's about saying to our kids, are you hungry? If you're hungry, eat the simcha. Um, but if you're not hungry, ask yourself why you're eating more and how you're going to feel if you eat more. Because if you feel stuffed, then you feel kind of gross. So if you want to eat more, enjoy. I have to press you on this because it's so fascinating. It's such a, it's such a fine line that you're touching on between uh-huh. wanting. So first of all, the boy girl, the boy girl divide also as a parent of both. I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And how do we like know? Like, I guess how do we talk about it? How do we help mm-hmm. them develop this positive right. relationship with food? Where I think you know um, we don't want to say anything. We don't want to like you know uh-huh. uh, say well you know you go for it. You know we don't want to encourage bad eating habits. So right. what's that delicate right. though? <laughs> right. So so food. You know the the second thing I'll add that I'm going to get to your question is also when we're talking also with your kids about food, it's about removing judgment which I started saying a little bit about, you know, do you really want that? It's not, you know, I've had so many friends, both male and female, who will say audibly after a meal, oh, I can't have dessert. I'm not allowed. Or, oh, that, you know, no cookies for me. You know, it's, you know, or, or, oh, that's really bad. I shouldn't have that. Or I'm I'm being really naughty. I'm taking seconds. There's this, this judgment heaped on food where we have to, first of all, just cut it out. If you don't want dessert, either don't say anything. Or, you know, frequently I get to the end of a Shabbat meal. I'm not hungry. I don't want dessert. Looks great. (laughs) Half the time I've made it and already tasted it fresh out of the oven. So I know it tastes good. Um, And, you know, because it's important for me to model healthy behaviors with my kids. I'll say, I'm really full right now. I'm not going to have dessert. Um, But if I'm hungry later, I think maybe I'll take a piece of this or a slice. You know, I'll even say, oh, I'm really full right now. 
save me a slice that though I'm going to have that with my coffee tomorrow for breakfast. Or I talk about what my what my needs are. But that you know, but going back to that fine line with the judgment. So when we start off by already removing judgment from food and j- judgment statements, oh, you know, this is bad. I shouldn't. I'm you know being really naughty. That already makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but with our kids, there is nothing wrong with also talking about nutrition, what your body needs, and that you can already start from a younger age. And you can talk about the importance of all the food groups. Um, you know, why do we need proteins? Why do we need carbohydrates? Why do we need starches? Why do we, you know, what did we get? You know, fruits are super healthy, but they're also loaded with different types of sugar. Why do we need them? What do we get? And then from a completely, I'm not a dietitian and dietitians can speak far more knowledgeably exactly, exactly which amounts, why, et cetera. But, you know, nutrition fills us up. Um, nutrition, protein fills us up, carbohydrates, our quick burst of energy, the analogy is carbohydrates are kind of like our uh, firework of energy and then proteins are our candle. So both provide us thing that we need, but one's quicker, faster now, and one then continues giving right. us something. From a psychological perspective, I think that eating dessert and snacks and so just eating for fun is really important because it food for us as especially Jews plays a huge cultural role. You know, already my Facebook feed is flooded with people saying, I need ideas for Simanim or what are we doing for this? Or I'm so bored with my Rosh Hashanah food. Can I have a dessert idea? You know, it's it's not just, we're not just eating to eat. Yeah. Food has meaning for us. It has ideas. It has its, its cultural relevance. You know, oh, I'm making my grandmother, you know, I'm making my grandmother's apple kugel. Someone's yeah. going to make her bubbies this. Someone's going to make her something's that, yeah. you know? So um, we're going to, you know, food for us is a connector. It's our past. It's it symbolizes things for us. You know, we we start um, we start our Shabbat and Chag meals with 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 foods <laughs> that we make blessings over to signify a certain point in yeah. our meal or in our day. So sometimes just eating because it's enjoyable and pleasurable is also something which parents, when you're saying, "Where's that line?" It's okay to say, "Listen, our bodies, you know, you need proteins, carbohydrates, vegetables, etc." You don't need as much of some things as others. Too much of anything also can make you sick. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing, you know, during the carrot diet craze mm-hmm. in the 70s, a lot of women's fingertips turned yellow wow. because they were just eating carrots, carrots, carrots. Um, you can die from too much water. It doesn't happen frequently, but, you know, there's too, there is absolutely too much of a good thing. Yeah. So we talk about the importance of, of giving your body what it needs first. But sometimes, you know, sometimes there's, you know, part of your stomach, which really wants that piece of chocolate, or sometimes there's really, really something pleasurable and just nice about eating that cookie. And so if we go back to the mindfulness component, it's saying you want to have this other thing. Great. Just, just enjoy it while you're eating it though. Don't just shovel it mindlessly into your mouth. Yes. Yeah. You know, if you want, if you want that second helping of potatoes, take some, eat it. Just focus on the food. How does it taste? Are you enjoying it? And then just stop. Ask yourself if you're full. Wait five, 10 minutes. If you're still hungry, take more. Absolutely. Um, and by teaching our kids to remove judgment from food and to also, um, you know, be present more when they're eating and just listen to their bodies, they'll naturally develop a healthier, um, healthier connection. Just a tiny quick example of how this works. We do ice cream for breakfast in my house on birthdays. <laughs> Seven in the morning, I stick candles and, you know, Ben and Jerry's or Hagen does, whatever it is, you know, sing happy birthday. And about oh, however many years ago it was, I, five, six years ago, I said to my kids, I said, I, I can't eat this for breakfast anymore because it gives me a stomach ache. 
Um, I was fine until my mid thirties. Um, and I said, I can't eat this anymore. It's giving me a stomach ache. I'm going to have my coffee. I'm going to have this for my or I'm going to have it for like later. I just, it doesn't make me feel good. Within a two year period, they all stopped eating ice cream for breakfast. Hmm. One by one by one, they'll say, you know, what else? I don't feel good. When I eat it. So we still buy it, but we have it like at five in the afternoon and we, I've yeah. made, you know, say, okay, great. You want pancakes, you want waffles, you want crepes. Like, you know, do you want fruits? What do you want? Hmm. I'll do whatever you want. But it's, I didn't say, oh, it's bad for me. I just, was open with the fact that I noticed how it made me feel and I didn't like it. Yes. Right. So I stopped. Yes. Um, so if we, it's less about, you know, telling them don't do this or do that. When we model checking in with ourselves and teaching them to check in with themselves, it can really affect their ability to have a healthy relationship with food. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, this is, uh, as we go into Rosh Hashanah, we're very much, you know, enhancing our mindset about so many other things in our life, you know, Chuba and mm-hmm. And I think that uh, that's the spiritual side, but in Judaism, spiritual and the physical are deeply connected. And so this really, for me, has been so enlightening uh, to think about um, as I'm in the kitchen preparing the meals, also think about um, how to just have that relaxed, positive oh. atmosphere. Um, and uh, and uh, hopefully communities, one by one, people will listen to, to your wisdom. Yeah. And, uh, and, and say the right things or just not say anything at all. Um, and uh, we should really wish a refuah shlema to those who are suffering um, with eating related disorders. And uh, and it should be ashana tova umetuka in all ways. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is hosted by the Eden Center, whose goal is to reinvigorate the ancient female ritual of mikvah as a sacred space for women and use it as the natural platform it is to connect to Jewish women's health, well-being, and healthy relationships, enhancing Jewish women and family life. We invite you to visit our website, www.theedencenter.com, to learn more about our work in making mikvah relevant, welcoming, and meaningful. This episode is a product of the Eden Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sponsoring a podcast in dollars or shekels at bit.ly backslash E-D-E-N-P-O-D. Additionally, give us a five-star rating, share this podcast on social media, and encourage others to subscribe.